We are starting and, or sorry, continuing a series called At the Table, which is an inspection of the tables that Jesus set and how, upon our inspection of them, how they might inform the tables we set. And what we mean is the communities that we form. If we haven't met yet, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here on staff at Awakening. And you guys have absolutely responded to this teaching, which is so cool. Over the last two weeks, Ryan and I have d- discussed and talked about how we can form tighter communities and our dedication to the communities beyond just the Sunday platform, right? Sunday, we're in rows, but moving towards tables and circles, small groups, which is what we call groups here at Awakening, our midweek groups. How many of you are in a group? Raise your hand. Yeah, awesome. Here's what's so cool. You guys have responded to this teaching, which is so exciting for us as pastors, is we've shown you what Jesus has done. Uh, You guys have really taken the lead. This uh, last week, just crunching some of the numbers, and these were like Thursday, so they could be higher than this at this point. I think they are. We have 189 people currently signed up and registered for groups, and an additional almost 70 at a maxed out startup, which puts us at near 255 people dedicating towards community. Isn't that awesome? Thank you, church, for responding to this. Just so you know, I mean, our Sunday attendance, it kind of floats around 300. We probably have 450 people that call Awakening Church home. And so that's really over half of our church that's saying we want to form tables. And, and, and I, I just want to celebrate that because it, it is an, it is a, it's evidence of what God's doing. It's evidence of people saying, that church, it's, it's just not enough and not fully the church experience to be in the experience we're in right now, right? That it takes a dedication to community. But here's what I want to talk about today. As we close this series, I want to say, man, if you've signed up for a group, awesome. Now show up. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Are you with me? Okay, all right. Yeah, you've signed up. It's now time to show up. And what I mean by that is not just show up once. Not just show up twice, but to commit to a group and continually show up for those people. To be a person who says, I'm going to commit. I will be there. This is a priority. This is the faithfulness I am going to uh, exemplify is by showing up to a group. Last week, Ryan talked about the different struggles we have to sign up, really the, 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 the struggles and excuses we make to step into community. He talked about how it's, we say things like, it's too personal, uh, I'm too important, it's too messy, I'm too busy. These are all excuses we make to not even step into community. What I want to talk about right now and this week is the difficulties and the realities of what happens when we show up. You see, there are things that happen in our uh, internal, in our souls that keep us out of community, but there's also things that keep us from continuing in community, amen? There's things that keep us from continuing to show up, and that's what I want to talk about today by looking at the last table Jesus sat at, at earth, on earth. His final table was called, it's famously called the Last Supper. You may have seen paintings of this portrait of this image of Jesus amongst his disciples. It took place the night before Jesus died. He's setting the table, and it's the table that he would be uh, amongst his disciples, but he would also be amongst the betrayer. He had, a, he had an interesting group of people. It was a diverse group of people. You had Simon the Zealot, who was essentially a religious nationalist. Matthew the tax collector, who was a traitor to his own people. We talked about that week one of the series. 
You had two brothers at the table, James and John. These were blue-collared guys with an anger problem. They were thunderous young men. They were, they were emotional young men. Judas Iscariot, who was a white-collared, educated accountant, accountant, the group's kind of treasurer, who would eventually betray Jesus. And all at this table, all their differences, their different personalities, dispositions, nationalities, religious backgrounds, and even their futures, which Jesus knew one of them would betray him. Even amidst all their differences, Jesus set this table for them. In John's gospel, actually, John gives a long discussion and puts five chapters to this meal. Basically, it's called the final discourse. It's Jesus' final time talking with his disciples. And through about five chapters, you see Jesus teaching, eating, discussion is happening, prayer, prophecy, demonstrations of love. He washes the disciples' feet. All of this happens essentially between John 13 and 18. It's this long monologue dialogue that's happening with Jesus and his diverse table. And in the middle of this, well, actually towards the end, Jesus prays. And he prays a long prayer for his disciples. It's found in John 17. And in John 17, 17, he he prays for his disciples and he says this. He says, sanctify them in the truth. And he prays through 17 and 18 and 19 for the disciples. But look at verse 20 up on the screen. Jesus begins praying. He says, I do not ask for these only, the people in his midst, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who's that? That's us. Who would believe in Jesus through the word of the disciples? Jesus is actually praying for you right now. He's praying for us. He's praying for awakening. And this is his prayer, 21. That they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus prays that despite the differences around his table of blue-collar, white-collar, religious nationalist, emotional, unemotional, he prays for all these. He says, I want these and those who believe in me through their word to be unified, to have a unity. But things get complicated. See, after this table, Jesus dies. He's betrayed. He dies a criminal's death on the cross. He's buried in a borrowed grave. He raises in glory, and the church movement, the movement of Christianity, explodes. And the story of the movement of that is in the very next book. If you're in the book of John, you just move to the book of Acts, and the book of Acts tells the story of the start of the church as the church moves to form their own tables. It started off of this one table that Jesus sat with his disciples at, but now the disciples go and start forming their own tables and things get complicated. Jesus' prayer that they would be one becomes a difficult thing to obey and to live into. You see, what starts to happen through the book of Acts is that it starts as a Jewish movement. It starts as a, re- a single religious conversion movement, almost a sub-religion, and a single ethnic group, just Jews. And all of these people start to be converted and to see that Jesus was the Messiah, the one long awaited through the Old Testament. And it's a mono-ethnic religion at the very start of it. But the thing is, God's spirit starts to expand. By the second chapter, God's spirit starts to move and people start to be converted of all nationalities and all tongues and all tribes. And all of a sudden, God's family starts to grow and this becomes a little bit of an issue because in the early church the 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 main issue that is faced uh, by the time you get to acts 15 this becomes almost an emergency in the church is between what you'll read about jew and gentile the jews 
We're the ones that were in the line of Jesus with the same sacred law and sacred scripture as Jesus. And they spoke about Jesus as the Messiah. They were in his line and in his group, both religiously and ethnically. The Gentiles were anybody outside of that group. And this was a huge divide in the early church. What inflamed this was there was actually a physical distinction. And I'm going to tell you about this because the passage we're going to look at beyond John 17 deals with this. The physical distinction was circumcision. It was a religious ritual that the Jews practiced in order to mark yourself to say, I'm Jewish. And, if you, and, and there is derogatory terminology around circumcision where they'd call the Jews the circumcised or the uncircumcised or the circumcision and the uncircumcision, Jew and Gentile. This was a racial divide. This was an ethnic divide. This was a religious divide. This was a societal divide. And in the church, it was the first major problem, a huge issue. And in the midst of this comes this man, Paul. And Paul is a Jew who feels called to the Gentiles. He, as a Jew, doesn't want to just set the table with Jews. He wants to set the table with non-Jews. And he wants to include people of all, uh, all, all backgrounds and, and nationalities. And at his tables, he wants to form communities that are diverse. He wants to form communities that are different. But the difficulty is not past him. You see, maybe you thought that... Uh, Racial issues and div- issues of division amongst other religions and, raci- and, and, and ethnic issues was a modern problem in the church. And it is. But it was most certainly an ancient issue. And this is what Paul wrote to the Ephesians. If you've got a Bible, head to Ephesians chapter 2 and you'll see our passage for this morning. Paul's going to talk about the Jew and Gentile divide and saying, this is what keeps people from showing up. What keeps us from showing up to communities is our differences. What keeps us from showing up to church is that people are different from us and we don't think they can understand us. But what Paul is going to show us is how the gospel confronts our differences and how it offers us a solution. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 11, therefore, Paul says to the Ephesian church, remember That at one time, you Gentiles, he's speaking as a Jew, talking to the non-Jews, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. He's using those playful derogatory terms, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember, he says, remember this, that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God, in the world. But now, look at this, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, you've been brought near. You Gentiles who have been seen on outside of the table, you're now welcomed to the table by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two. There would no longer be two different people, no longer Jew or Gentile. There would be just Christian. 16. And that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. And he came, Jesus came, and preached peace. He preached peace to look. Those who are far off, that's referring to the Gentiles, and peace to those who are near, the insiders, the Jewish people. For through him, 
Jesus. We both have access to one spirit, to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, the foundation, the linchpin, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We need help to understand this rich, long text. Let's pray. God, would you guide my words? And would you guide the thinking in our minds if we're distracted today focus us if we're discouraged encourage if we're proud humble us if we're critical make us open by the power of your spirit i pray in jesus name amen three realities happen as you continue to show up to jesus's table seen in this passage these are the three realities. The first reality is this. Without Jesus, we're divided and distant. Without Jesus, you'll notice in verses 11 and 12, he says, remember at one time you're separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth. And he says, you had no hope and you were without God in the world. Is that without Jesus, we're divided and distant. And you might, maybe today, you're new to church and this whole church thing is new to you, and you look at that sentence and you might think, no, 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 Chris. See, it's Jesus that actually makes things divided. It's religion that makes things divided. And I would say I partially agree with you. Just because there's a church doesn't mean there's Jesus in it. Just because there's an institution doesn't mean that Jesus is present. I'm saying not without Christianity. I'm saying without Jesus without the spirit of God, without the power of God, without the word of God, we are divided and distant. You see, in Paul's day, the issue was the Jews and the Gentiles. It was simple and it was focused. Today, we have a few things that divide us, huh? <laughs> Just a few, maybe three, right, in America. No, think about how race and ethnicity has divided us over the last couple of years, over our whole history, but has been highlighted all the more in these last couple of years. Gender and sexuality, socio and economic background, the rich and the poor, obviously politics, Democrat, Republican, religious and philosophical upbringing. How about beyond the hot button issues, some of the social issues, parenting, diet, Oh, you eat that? <laughs> I mean, I've never felt more self-conscious hosting a dinner party than in 2018. <laughs> I'm like, do you eat this? <laughs> um, we have created so much to divide, which it makes sense why Paul in this passage would say this, that we are divided, he says in the first two verses, three times in the flesh is because all of our divisions are what the biblical writers called the flesh, the sarks is the, is the Greek term. It's a, it's a term of worldliness, of earthiness, of, of temporal reality, that everything that divides us is of the flesh, is of the moment. We're divided quite literally by the flesh in America. 
Paul says, so long as we understand the depth of our differences without the help of God in Christ, we are without hope. We are without God in this world. That so long as we focus on those things, we have no hope at connecting with each other. And that's why it's so hard to show up. You might, you know, look, look at some of this and, and be like, well, isn't this, Chris, this is still in the church. This is still in well-meaning churches. And I would say yes and amen. Yes, and that's why we need Jesus' help at Awakening. That's why we can't get, get ahead of ourselves and just think, oh, Awakening's got it, or we're multi-ethnic, and we're good, and we're open-minded, and we have young people here and all this stuff. No, we need Jesus' help, or else the flesh will divide us. The flesh will end up carving out different subgroups. You see, in the church, I, I see us make several mistakes in this area. And to, to show this, I'm going to use horrifically cheesy and terrible examples because it's all I could think of. Is that okay? <laughs> Just have grace for your pastor today. First thing we do in the church is we treat, treat the church, you ready for this? Like a Lunchable. Do you remember Lunchables? Little stacks of wet meat <laughs> and hard cheeses. And crackers that when you bit them, they would instantly dissolve into massive amounts of crumbs. And your mom, mine, was like, I don't want to make lunch, so here. And I was like, oh, Lunchables again, cool. If you serve your kids Lunchables, God bless you. This. But the Lunchable, it's all separated, right? It's all divided. It's all like in different corners. And only if you choose to combine the elements do the elements combine. This is what we do at the church. We only choose to relate with each other on certain things. So we want to divide on many issues, but, oh, I like their worship song, so I'll use their worship song from that culture. Oh, I like the way that that preaching goes, so I'll use that. Oh, I, I like that. I like how they give this. So I'm going to just choose, pick and choose. But ultimately, at my whole life, the rest of my life, I'm just going to live in my little corner. I'm just going to live in, in, my, in my own little section. And, and so we separate ourselves and we become obstinate and prejudiced, thinking that we're going to wall off other people and assume the worst about them. The second thing we do, though, not just a Lunchable, but we also want to make a soup. Combining all of the elements, but losing the distinction of each of them. We, we want to create a kind of beige church, a passive and privileged church that sits up in its own cultureless way. We want to delete the distinctions we all bring to the table and just become a church culture. We want to form our own society that's separated from the societies and backgrounds we all come from. And so we lose the flavor and it ends up just making the flavor of the dominant ingredient, like tomato soup. You put other things in tomato soup, but it tastes like tomato and it looks red. And churches work that way. Churches delete the cultures that people bring and end up making it just kind of whatever the dominant culture breeds. And without Jesus, it's Lunchables or soup. I told you it was bad. <laughs> don't act like it was trying to be profound. Like, don't, 
I told you, I was like, get ready, this is bad. Okay, Scott McKnight wrote this great book, and it's the title, uh, I took it from the title of this message, the title of his book is called A Fellowship of Difference, not E-N-C, but E-N-T-S, of different people, plural. And he says this, that the church is actually probably best, if you're going to take a culinary example, he doesn't do lunches and soup, soup, lunch bowls and soup. He says, it's like a salad. You, you've got distinct ingredients that maintain their composure and maintain their identity where, when bringing them together, creates something new. But everything is left intact. Without Jesus, we're going to either gloss over or overemphasize our differences. You're going to want to leave a group, a midweek group, or leave a church because you're going to say things like this. They don't get it. They don't understand me. They don't understand my life, my background, my culture. They don't understand me. They're not meeting my needs. I don't have anything in common with them. We don't see things the same way. I wish they would do this. I wish they wouldn't do that. The issue is that most of everything I just said is true. There's certain things I'm not going to understand about you. There's certain things I'm just not going to get about you because you come from a different place than I do. Likewise, you're not going to understand everything about me. There's going to be things you're going to be annoyed about because they're blind spots in my life. Because I don't know them. That's why they're called blind spots. But... <laughs> But you're going to say, Chris doesn't understand, or Awakening doesn't understand, or they don't get me, or the people in my group, they don't understand. And I'm telling you, they're true. But here's the deal. Christianity isn't about the absence of differences. It's about the presence of Christ. It's not about moving all of our differences aside or leaving them at the front of the house like a pair of shoes before you enter as a guest. It's about bringing everything together and also letting Christ reign, letting Jesus reign and do what he wants to do. There is no removal of diversity. There's no removal of culture. There's the presence of Jesus. And without him, awakening is divided and distant. Without him, the American church is divided and different, distant. We, we, we will not understand each other. And at some level, we just won't. But with Jesus, we have, secondly, unity and peace. With Jesus, we have unity and peace. In verses 13 through 18, Paul says, But now in Christ, those who are far off have been brought near. He says this incredible phrase in verse 14. For he himself, Jesus himself is peace. If you're taking notes, just write, Jesus equals peace. Many Christians believe that Jesus brings peace because he's Jesus. That's like the most sophisticated we get with our theology in that. It's like Jesus brings peace. How? He's Jesus. Sounds like something he would do. But notice the, notice the destructive imagery in this passage. Jesus does not bring peace out of nowhere. He brings peace out of his death. Jesus doesn't bring peace because he's, quote, Jesus. Jesus brings peace because he has died for us. 
Jesus brings peace out of something he's done. You see, it's only when we see Jesus as defeating evil that we can see peace being welcomed in. A couple of theologians for you, Fleming Rutledge in her book, The Crucifixion, she says this, God's righteousness is the same thing as his justice, which does not mean excusing, passing over, or even, quote, forgiving and forgetting, but actively making right that which is wrong. The cross doesn't forgive and forget. The cross pays. Secondly, this quote from Kenneth Leach, evil forces, he says, are to be cast out, not reconciled. Reconciliation is the result of struggle and is brought about only through conflict and eventually through death itself. I don't have time to get into this, but a cursory reading of the civil rights movement uh, through Martin Luther King would understand this quote to be true. Evil forces are to be cast out. It wasn't that Martin Luther King was asking like, hey, the racists and the non-racists should get together and just learn to get along. There's a defeat of evil that must happen. That white supremacy has no room in reconciliation. That evil forces must be cast out. And so in Ephesians, you'll see this language in this passage that peace is unexpectedly both destructive and constructive. In other words, the cross is pushing out certain things and building up others. There's a complete washing away and deleting of some things and a building up of something else. What is Christ destroying? He's destroying sin. Your New Testament is filled with very destructive imagery around sin, that it would be killed, that it should be crucified, that it should be destroyed. And so when I judge you for something you bring into my group, the cross is destroying that in me. When you come in and I go, man, I don't don't know why he's sharing that. I don't know why she's doing, I don't know why she's that way. Man, she's pretty annoying. Every time they come together, he won't stop talking or whatever. Christ is destroying that sin in me so that I can keep committing to you in this church. Likewise, when I think you just, quote unquote, don't get it, I share something from my background. It's not a part of your story. I grew up differently than you. You grew up differently than me. I'm white. You're not. And I think they just don't get it. Or you think, Chris, he's white. He just doesn't get it. The cross is slowly destroying that in us. It's destroying our superiority. It's destroying the things about us that we think they just won't get it. The cross is destroying that. It's not forgiving and forgetting that. It's not passing over that. It's not glossing over it. It's saying, kill it. In the name of Jesus, would it be destroyed in your life so that you could continually show up and commit to your group? And what is he constructing? It says in this, in, in this passage, it says that, that he's constructing a dwelling place for God, which is unbelievable that your little group, that this church would actually be being built up to be a place where God could live, where God's Holy Spirit, as we come together, the New Testament calls us a temple. It calls us a place of holiness, not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has brought. And so now, Race and ethnicity, political party, gender and sexuality doesn't, is no longer an excuse to disassociate. It's now the reason to associate. It's now to say, wait a second, because we have Christ and he's building a dwelling place, let's all come to the house of the Lord. Let's all come to our group. Let's all show up week after week. We get to learn from each other because we know God is building us together. We don't know how. Sometimes it's mysterious. They're like, man, he's conservative, I'm liberal. How's this going to work? You know? He's charismatic. I came up up Southern Baptist. How's that going to work? We know Christ is building something. We know he's destroying sin in us, 
and he's building the dwelling place of God. And maybe that's why you're curious, like maybe in, you, you've seen in the New Testament, like in this passage, you see phrases like that Jesus is saving us, quote, by his blood. And you're like, why do we sing about that? Why do we read about that? Or like that he's been crucified, quote, in the flesh. The New Testament includes these verses because the, purposes of, the purpose of Jesus uh, and his death being, quote, by his blood or, quote, in the flesh is to show his power over those very forces, You see, it's to show that the cross is very interested in the fleshly things. (laughs) The cross is very interested in social justice. The cross is very interested in racial reconciliation. The cross is highly interested in our differences, not dividing us, but uniting us. Because the cross destroys your personal superiority, you now have the opportunity to change your thinking in light of it. See, because Jesus died in the flesh, you can die in your flesh. Because Jesus died... And by his blood, you can live with new life. So you can start moving your thinking like this. When you start to think they don't understand, the cross would cause you to rethink that. Not they don't understand. How can I understand them? They don't care. Turns into how can I care for them? They're not interested. Becomes I'm interested in them. The cross changes your superiority when you look at the love of what God has done. When you see how good God has been, that he would step into humanity and he would die for you, carrying your sin on his shoulders, your heart transforms and you begin to ask different questions. You don't start to think, well, they just need to learn that. They need to read their history. They need to know this. It becomes, how how can I learn from them? Because the more you grow as a Christian, you're convinced everybody else around you is better than you, especially non-Christians. You start to meet non-Christians and you are certain that they're better than you. You start to relate with your spouse knowing that they're a better person than you are because the cross is slowly, slowly killing that which is in you that fills you with pride. That's the great hope of the gospel. And this is why I'm telling you, It's not a given that this hope is in every church. But at Awakening, it will be primary. In our groups, it will be foundational. In in our church, the cross will be supreme. We will live in service to God's good gospel. The truth is, In Christian community, you don't have to share the same struggles because you share the same solution. You see, I think our generation especially has a lot to learn in this. I I hear it a lot. We gravitate towards people who have the same struggle or story as we do. We're like, oh, we really bonded because like, you know, I have this struggle and man, they struggle with the same thing. It's just like, man, we just bond over that. And I understand there's some therapeutic areas and good healing there. But at the end of the day, don't wait for people to relate with you off of your struggle or your story because you have the same solution. It's like a number of years ago um, when I was, I was freshly ordained, I was really young, I was 21, and we were in this church that was starting this program called um, Celebrate Recovery, if you've heard of it. It's kind of like a Christian AA. It's like 
12 steps is an AA. There's like 13 because Christians need to do something else. Uh, there's like 12 steps in AA. There's 13 in, in uh, Celebrate Recovery. It's a recovery program for addicts, and our church was doing this big push to adopt a lot of this and, and to do a lot of small groups, and they wanted all the pastors to go through it. And I remember just like rolling my eyes a little bit, shamefully. I say this like in shame. Um, like I, I was just like, what am I going to have in common with them? Because I didn't struggle with addiction. It's not my story. It's not my struggle. And there were guys in my group that were struggling with alcohol addiction, that struggled with porn addiction. And looking around the room the first time we gathered with this small group, like, man, first off, a lot of old guys in here. You know, I was like, they got a story. I don't have a story. And my immediate thought in my pride was that I couldn't relate with them or I couldn't bond with them because we didn't share the same struggle. But really, one week in, you guys, one week in, just hearing how the gospel was weaving into all of our lives, we were bonding. Because we didn't share the same struggle, but we shared the same solution. And I ended up going through Celebrate Recovery not once, not twice. I went through three times because what I learned was that addiction is a sin just like pride. And pride is probably worse. And when I showed up to that table, I assumed myself better than the people in that room. And what the gospel did was humiliate me. It's one of the greatest gifts of my life to sit with those men in three different groups and to discuss the healing agency of the gospel amidst all of our problems. You see, you may not share the same struggle or the same story as somebody in your group. That doesn't matter. You share the same solution. Jesus Christ has come to build for himself a dwelling place. That community at Celebrate Recovery was so essential for me as a young man because I didn't see the vastness of struggles or the vastness of sin. I saw the vastness of grace. I saw how adaptable God's goodness was to all kinds of stories. We came from different generations, racial backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, and we came from different struggles. And yet God, in his goodness, could meet all of us in one community, and there he dwelled. What did he bring in that group? Peace and unity. That's why Paul says Jesus himself is the peace. Jesus himself is the unity. You realize that the peace and unity does not come from an absence of conflict or an absence of differences that we eschew that it comes through the presence of Christ in your group. And so long as you dedicate on seeking Christ together, you may have different stories, but you'll have the same solution. Ultimately, finally, in Jesus, we are built up for eternity. You see, it's not only that Jesus is bringing unity, but the thing about unity and peace, you guys, is it's actually... It's, it, it's, it's like a pouring over from heaven itself. Do you realize this? You and I actually deserve, because of how bad we are, we deserve to be a divided nation. We deserve to be a, a, a dis, distant people. 
because we're mean to each other and we're prejudiced. But Jesus, in his great goodness, brings a little bit of taste of heaven. He brings unity down to earth through his church. And he lets us taste what we will have forever. You see, life together in a group, it actually means we're tasting a little bit of life forever. And you might be like, oh, no. I'm going to be in this small group in heaven? (laughs) Use a little bit more imagination. How about Paul's imagination in the end of the passage of Ephesians 2, 19 through 22? Look at this. So then you no longer are strangers and aliens, your fellow citizens. 21, in whom, in Christ, the whole structure is joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. 22, in him, you also are being built together into the dwelling place of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote one of his best books on community. It's called Life Together. It's a really small book. He was the German theologian and dissenter to the Hitler regime. He was killed in 1945, just three weeks before the end of the war. He was killed for conspiring against Hitler and standing with Jewish people, a Gentile, standing at the table with Jews. Something that you think might just exist in your New Testament, but is in our modern day today, quite real. It's because Bonhoeffer did not see himself as distinct and different from the Jews, so much as he saw kinship with them as image bearers of God. It drove his whole theology. He writes this in Life Together, 19, he wrote this in about 1940. Our community with one another consists solely in what Christ has done in both of, uh, to both of us. The more genuine and deeper our community becomes, the more will everything else between us recede. The more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the one and only thing that is vital between us. We have one another only through Christ, But through Christ, we do have one another wholly and for all eternity. You see, upon committing to your group, despite your differences, you are answering Jesus' prayer that will be answered. Mark my words. It will be answered. One day we will be in heaven and every tribe, tongue, and nation will come together in the dwelling house of God. We will all be together. Jesus' prayer will be answered. The question is, do you want to get to know about it now? Do you want to get to know it now? Do you want to know what it's like to watch your differences elevate your community instead of divide it? That line from the Last Supper that Jesus prayed will be answered. And every week we come to not let our differences fall away, but to let Christ build us up despite our differences. And so let me invite you to the communion table today to reflect on this beautiful reality that Jesus, through his broken body in the flesh, because he was torn apart in the flesh, we can come together in the flesh, no matter our differences. Because Jesus emptied his blood, which is represented in the cup, his new covenant assures us that we can be his people through his blood. Not because of your blood and my blood, because it matches up, but because of his blood. We are all one family in Christ. 
And that's what communion reminds us of. And so when you come to this table, come to this table knowing that the presence of Christ is in your midst and commit to his community knowing that he is building up a dwelling place for himself. Let me pray. Father God, without you, we can do nothing. Without you, God, we are divided and distant. Without you, God, we are cultural Christians. Without you, God, we are Democrats, Republicans. God, without you, we are white, black, Asian. God, without you, we are distant and divided. But with you, we are your children. We're all in your house. And so we invite you, God, to awakening this morning right now, God. We invite you, your presence, your peace to reign here and now. And we set our eyes and set our gaze, not on our differences, not on our struggles. We set our sights on you. God, help us. If we don't have that picture, God, my prayer is that your Holy Spirit would encourage this body this morning. God, give us what we need. God, we need you. We need you. Come and be our peace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.